Happy Resurrection Sunday. Everybody in a chipper mood this morning? You should be. You should be. As grateful as I am that this will probably be the most attended service uh, weekend of services we've ever had as a church, that's all well and good. You know what really excites me? Is the one who got up is present in this place among us. Friday night, we celebrated and remembered the death and burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody's so excited to get to Sunday and celebrate as we should be excited and we should celebrate, but there would be no Sunday if he would not have done what he did on Friday. And we get to celebrate the fact that he is risen. And I'm a little bit old school on Resurrection Weekend. I was raised in ministry uh, by my hero, Pastor Robert Morris, and something he started uh, when he started Gateway uh, nearly 25 years ago when I was 21 years old was every uh, Easter weekend in every service at the beginning of every message, he would start with three words and have everyone else respond with four words. He would say, he is risen. And everyone else would say, yeah, you're already ahead of me. He's risen indeed, okay? But I have kind of adopted a little bit of a tweak on that um, special tradition. Every time I say he is risen throughout the message, I just want you to holla back and say he is risen indeed, okay? Let's practice one more time before we jump in, all right? And if you've never spoken in church, you can just kind of quietly say it. But if you're excited about the fact that we do not serve a God who's still in the grave. When I say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, that, that, that's not bad to start off the 8.30 service, but by the end of this bad boy, we better be a little bit riled up. You know what I'm saying? Okay, if you got a Bible, I'd love it if you'd turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We'll put the, the verses on the screen throughout the message. But we're going to talk about the crux of Christianity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Paul says, here is the most important thing about being a follower of Jesus Christ. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died in our place. He was buried when we should have been. And on the third day, he was raised to life again. But here's the big question, why? Why did he get up? And we're going to spend the morning together answering this question. The title of this message is, here's why he got up. I forgot to remind you, for those of you who care about these things, I was supposed to say this at the beginning of the message. Uh, next weekend, my best friend on planet earth will be preaching here at Pillar, Pastor Tim Ross. Yes, I forgot to mention that. So uh, there's so many people who want to kill me when I don't publicly say, 
He's coming, okay? So Jesus is risen and Tim is coming next week. <laughs> okay. Before I give you the four answers to this question, why did he get up? I just want to remind us all, calibrate all of our hearts and minds that this message is meant to serve as a romantic reminder to every follower of Jesus while simultaneously serving as an intimate invitation to every person who is not yet a follower of Jesus and friend of God. I want you, if you are a believer in Jesus, to be reminded of how awesome this is. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I want to extend an intimate invitation on behalf of the God of the universe to spend forever together with him. And that is only made possible because of what Jesus did for you. So let's get into the discussion. Why did Jesus get up? Answer number one, to show. To show. To show what? That he was God. Jesus got up to show that he was not just any man, but that he was the God who came for 33 and a half years to this earth as a man in order to save mankind. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say the good news is about his, God's, son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is an amazing passage, and it is amazing that he got up. But it's so, so, so much better than that. He actually called it long before he did it. If this is like a divine game of horse between Jesus, the Son of God, and his enemy, Satan, Jesus didn't just do it. He called it before he did it. And for us basketball players, that makes it even more impressive. If you make some crazy shot, good on you. But if you call it and then make it, I am impressed with you. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. One such instance where Jesus called his shot. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. That's exactly how it happened by a man named Judas. He will be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. Okay, anybody who predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off has got to be God. And here's, here's why I believe that. Because he has enemies who cannot stand him. And if God's enemies could have stopped him, they would have. God's enemies so hate him that if the Son of God said he would come back to life after his death, his enemies would have made sure to obliterate him so that he couldn't. But they could not. And so he got up. But it gets even better than that. If you've been at this church for any amount of time, you know that my perspective of God in Scripture is that many times he, he displays divine swagger. He doesn't just, you know, he's not the God who just kind of walks around like this. He's the God who's got his shoulders pinned back and kind of, kind of gets this thing going every once in a while. 
I'm gonna show you. You ready for this? John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is talking. He says, the Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. Watch this. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, Jesus says, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and the authority to take it up again when I want to. I'm telling you, I think he was just doing this right here. <laughs> I grew up playing basketball, and uh, this might surprise you about the person in this pulpit, but when I was growing up, I was a major trash talker. And I, I played on a basketball team in high school where my uncle was the coach, and my cousins and I were basically the starting lineup. Now, that might make you think that this was some trash small school. Nobody else thought that in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We were pretty salty, and we knew it, and we talked a lot because of it. But here's what I learned. The more mouthy you are before the game, the more you better be able to pull it off. Because if you run your mouth and your opponent is better than you, stronger than you, bigger than you, here's what I learned the hard way multiple times, they will shut you up by shutting you down. Notice, Jesus, in essence, looks at his enemies and says, now I'm going to lay my life down. Now you're, you're all going to act like you took my life from me, but I'm going on record before it goes down to let everybody know nobody can take my life from me. And furthermore, I think this is just a little bit of my, how I think it went down a little bit. Let me use my righteous imagination. I think he kind of looked at his enemies and said, and when I get up after this whole thing goes down, I'm going to look in your direction and say, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Some of you came to church and you may not have been in church in a while and you are shocked to know that Jesus was a trash talker. <laughs> He's a really good one. He's the most perfectly theological trash talker in the history of humanity. Apart from Christ's resurrection, we have no savior, which means we have no salvation, which means we have no hope in eternal life. But I have good news. He is risen. That was okay. <laughs> Answer number two, point number two. Why did he get up? To deal. To deal. To deal what? To fully deal with sin once and for all time. In order to triumph over sin, Jesus not only needed to die to take sins upon himself, he also needed to rise from the dead to show that sin was finally dealt with. In other words, if he didn't get up, then he'd be held by sin forever. He died in the place of sinners, and then when he rose, he displayed it was actually finished. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, tells us, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. Have you ever had... God's enemies ever come to try and taunt you about sins from your past? To label you 
or define you by a mistake you made in your past? Well, let me just remind us all who are believers in Jesus, and if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I'm going to give you some really good news. You don't have to be defined by all the mistakes of your past. And Satan comes and says, you're guilty of that sin, and you always will be. We must respond in our hearts by saying, no, I'm not, and I have the receipts. My kids, you know, I try not to talk like my kids, because when I do, they say, I'm a tryhard. <laughs> and so I, I, I don't do it, but there's a phrase I've heard them use. I've got the receipts. And I didn't know what this fully meant. So this week as I was studying for this message, I texted my oldest son and I said, hey bro, uh, I'm getting ready for the message. Uh, I've heard you guys use this phrase and I'm thinking about using it in the message. Well, first he's like, daddy don't. <laughs> I said, what does I've got the receipts mean? And he just gives me, like a typical 17 year old boy, he, he texts back and he just says, I have the evidence to prove my point, okay? I remember what I just said. When the enemy comes to taunt you, to say you are defined by your sin in such a way that you'll always be guilty of your sin, as children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, we must respond saying, no, I am not guilty, and I have the receipts to prove it. The resurrection of Jesus is all the evidence and the only receipt a follower of Jesus needs to eternally be reminded that they have been declared not guilty. So when he picks on you, you just need to holler back. And I don't mean engage him directly, I just mean in your heart, go, I am not guilty. And the resurrection is my receipt. Was that affair you had years ago right? No. Was it sin? Yes. If you're a believer in Jesus, was it covered and paid for by the blood? Yes. So then are you still defined by this because you are still guilty of this? No. So when Satan comes and says, you know what you are? You're an adulterer. You can respond like this. On that day, I wrongly chose adultery. And then you can point to the day where you gave, you gave your life to Jesus and say, but on that day, I rightly chose Jesus. And then you can point to the day Jesus laid his life down on the cross and say, on that day, Jesus shed his blood to pay for my wrong choice. And then you can point to the most famous Sunday in all of human history, Resurrection Sunday, and say, on that day, Jesus got up to forever remind me that the Father accepted Jesus' payment for my sin, and I have therefore been eternally declared not guilty. That was lame, that response. I, you're not responding to the preaching, you're responding to the truth. Homie up on the stage doesn't need the affirmation. We need to celebrate that empty tomb is the receipt that I'm not guilty. Jesus got up to deal with my sin once and for all. God raising Jesus from the dead showed God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. If God left Jesus in the grave, it would let us know the sacrifice was not accepted and no one has received cleansing from sin. But he is risen. risen and that means his sacrifice for me and for you was accepted once for all time.
That brings us to the third answer to the question. Why did he get up? To defeat. We're kind of building here. To defeat. To defeat what? To defeat death. Jesus got up from the dead to show he had fairly, fully, and finally defeated death. Here's what's so special about Jesus getting up. Jesus didn't just defeat death for himself. Jesus defeated death for us all. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're there, look in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Jesus didn't just defeat death for himself. Jesus defeated death for me. If Jesus is not resurrected, then we have no hope that we will be either. Now, what is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 teaching us? That Jesus is the first fruits. I don't have enough time to linger here, but when you study the feasts that go all the way back to biblical days and are still celebrated to this day, Jesus died at Passover, making sure everyone on earth understood he is the lamb who is slain. But it's even more gangster than that. What day did he get up? The feast of first fruits. Let me help you with a little bit of context for what the feast of first fruits was all about. As they were stepping into the harvest, they would take the first crop of wheat, let's say, and they would cut it off and they would take, they would dedicate it to the Lord and wave the sheaf of wheat before the Lord, declaring the harvest belongs to the Lord. But that wasn't the only thing they were declaring when they waved the sheaf of wheat as the first fruit on the Feast of First Fruits. They were also communicating there is more coming after this. That's what first fruits is. If there's not more coming, then it's not first fruits. It's the only. So I want to show you this. Get back in basketball mode, trash talking Preston basketball mode. Every once in a while in a big game when I would score, I might have been known to rub it in the face. Not of my opponents, but the idiots in the stands rooting for the other team. <laughs> I'm being silly, but maybe not. I want you to get this picture. God raised Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of First Fruits. And this is kind of how I think it went down in the heavenlies. It's as though the Father took the Son up from the grave, waving him like the sheaf of wheat, the first fruits, saying, Do any of my enemies understand what this moment means? If he got up, then that means there is far more to come. All of my children are going to get up. It's like he slammed the ball in the end zone after scoring the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. He is risen. He is risen 
Jesus died at Passover and was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. My man, Jesus. That brings us to the fourth answer to the question. This is the last one we're going to talk about. Why did he get up? It's my favorite one. To spin. Jesus got up to spin. Some of the ladies are like, I knew I loved Jesus. <laughs> He's a shopper. Ladies, we men shop too, okay? It's not a female thing. I was just being silly, all right? But we're not talking about spending money. Preston, then why did he get up to spend? To spend forever with you. It's the best part, in my opinion. He got up to spend forever with you. Acts 2.24 makes such a beautiful statement about the irrepressible power and love of Jesus. It says this, But God released Jesus from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. Love it when he talks like that. Power from God is what enabled Jesus to get up. But love for you is what motivated Jesus to get up. Have you been to this church for any amount of time? You know one of my favorite verses in the Bible, John 15, 13. I think it's the most romantic verse in the Bible. Jesus says, you want me to explain love for you? You were all created to need it and to be willing to do anything to find it. Want me to explain it to you? Greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for his friends. Most romantic verse in the Bible. Jesus says, I'm not just going to tell you I love you. I'm going to show you by laying my life down for you. Now, think about this. If you had all power in heaven and on earth and you love someone so much that you would die for them, doesn't it kind of make sense that you'd use that power to get up so you could spend forever with them? When I was preparing for this, I feel like I just, the Lord gave me this picture. And it was the two of you spending the day together. I want you just to imagine spending an uninterrupted entire day with Jesus. And I saw the look on your face. And I heard the words coming out of your mouth. You were soaking it all up. And Jesus wasn't looking at his phone. He wasn't answering important calls. It was as though he never looked away from you for the entire day. And you were wrapped up in it all. And towards the end of the day, it was like I saw the two of you in this dimly lit restaurant at a table in the back where no one could find you. He was gazing at you. You were intimately gazing right back. And I heard these words not just come out of your mouth, but out of your heart. I wish this moment would last forever. Maybe you've been on date night before and everything was so awesome you heard your heart say out loud, 
I just wish this moment would last forever. It was like I heard you say it to Jesus. I just wish this moment together would last forever. Here's what I I feel like his response is and will be every time you talk to him like that. But in this picture, here's what I felt like he responded back with. You're enjoying this moment that much? You want this moment to last forever? I, I do too. This is why I came. But if you want this moment to last forever, there's something I must go and do. Jesus gets up from the table, pushes his seat beneath the table. You say, but Jesus, I just told you I wanted this moment to last forever. And he says, oh, it can and it will, but only if I do what I must do. You see, if you want this moment with me to last forever, I must go die in your place. And I must go into that tomb for three days. And if you want this moment to last forever, I'm going to need to get up on that third day. Now, I know this is a, a serious and sweet moment, but can I insert a little silliness? I just wonder if this were a true story, if Jesus wouldn't say, here, hold my wine glass <laughs> and walk out. You want this moment to last forever? Okay. I'll be right back. He didn't just leave heaven. He left that table because you told him you wanted to spend forever with him at that table. And so he let them beat him to a bloody pulp. He let them nail him to that cross. And when he could have jumped off or had angels come rescue him, he chose to see his assignment to the finish line his father had established so that you could spend forever with him. Love is what motivated Jesus to come down to the earth. Love is what motivated Jesus to go down to the grave. And love is what motivated Jesus to get up from the grave. Jesus died so you could live forever. But he got up so that the two of you could spend forever together.